Happy Friday and thank you for joining me on this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. This is a TJPS special report. Right now, we are in a rule of law crisis and it is very unsettling. These are times where it is essential that we as a nation pay attention because the rule of law is in danger. Therefore, when anything is in danger, we know that that is not good. On February 13, 2017, Mike Flynn resigned as National Security Advisor. That is the shortest tenure that any National Security Advisor has ever served, and that news was big and just astonishing. After he resigned, we found out that he was on the payroll of a foreign government working as an agent. According to multiple news reports, we also learned that the Trump transition team was absolutely cognizant of this, but did not think of it as a problematic. Instead, they went ahead with Mike Flynn and hired him. There were some of other very problematic things about Flynn that Trump and his transition team decided to disregard, including the caveat by outgoing President Barack Obama, who told Trump not to not to bring in not to bring in Flynn on as national security advisor. Despite those warnings, President Trump did otherwise and picked Mike Flynn to be his national security advisor. And so that essentially led to his resignation. Nearly a month after Flynn registered uh, registered or according to the white excuse me resigned or according to the white house was fired he retroactively registered with the doj as a foreign agent fast forward 7 days documents from the house oversight committee indicated that flynn was paid more than $45,000 including perks by the state sponsored russian television network rt to speak there on its 10th anniversary back in 2015 If you go back to why President Obama warned Trump not to bring Flynn on as national security advisor, if you go back to that story and dig a little deeper, you will find something there. And it is that in 2014, just a year before Mike Flynn gave his speech in Russia, he was fired because he had received, excuse me, because he had serious Russian contacts. The MoscowProject.org describes it like this, quote, Flynn is reportedly bitter and angry when he eventually was pushed out of the DIA in August 2014. He subsequently became a contributor to RT, where he, quote, often argued that the U.S. and Russia should be working more closely together on issues like fighting ISIL and ending Syria's civil war, end quote. Thenceforth, on May 10th, President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey for investigating the Russia investigation. Six days after Comey was fired, it was indicated in his memos that the president asked him to end the Flynn investigation by saying, quote, he is a good guy. I hope you can let this go, end quote. Subsequently, on December 1st, Flynn pleaded guilty in court for lying to the FBI. Then a day later, President Trump sort of clarified his comments a bit, saying that, yeah, I fired Flynn because he lied to the FBI. Okay. Fast forward three years later, now down the road, and we learn that the Justice Department abruptly drops its case against former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, and then a federal judge held it for a while. Now, as of Wednesday earlier this week, a federal appeals court panel ordered an end to the case against Michael Flynn, which is a win for the Justice Department and the Trump White House. But even though that case has now concluded, it's infuriating because the only reason why DOJ dropped charges against Mike Flynn in the first place back in early May was because Attorney General William Barr stepped in. The president has continued to use the Justice Department as a political weapon, specifically to protect his friends and punish his enemies. 
So that has just transpired this week, but there is another one as well. And in order for me to tell this story, I must go back to July of 2019. All right, so back in July, a federal judge in Manhattan announced that the investigation into the president's campaign finance violations was over. That announcement sort of came abruptly and left lots of questions. In fact, the abrupt conclusion of that case was sort of inexplicable. Elections excuse me, yes, inexplicable. That investigation was about hush money payments arranged during the 2016 presidential elections to two women who alleged of having an affair with President Trump. Michael Cohen in that case blew the whistle on President Trump, saying that he 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 had arranged the payments during the campaign. According to Judge According to a judge named William H. Pauley III, those campaign finance violations in those papers, quote, are a matter of national importance, end quote. Judge Polly also said, quote, now that, now that the government's investigation into those violations has concluded, it is time that every American has an opportunity to scrutinize the materials, end quote. Judge Polly, um, he, so... Back, so back in July, that was Judge Polly's reporting. That was Judge Polly's perspective on what had just transpired after the case was abruptly shut down by a federal judge in Manhattan, New York. The president has repeatedly denied um, having any role in this case when he evidently did, obviously, because Michael Blown put the whistle on him, when it was also conspicuous in court court documents and also with the big money checks that he did testify to the House Oversight Committee with. It will later be said by Michael Cohen that the president was the mastermind behind the whole thing. When that case into the president concluded, Michael Cohen said this, quote, The conclusion of the investigation exonerating the Trump organization's role should be of great concern to the American people and investigated by Congress and the Department of Justice, end quote. On July 19, 2019, the Wall Street Journal published an article with the headline, quote, Prosecutors are asked why Trump was indicted for campaign finance violations. Further into, an art, further into the article, it reads, In a letter Friday to Audrey Strauss, the deputy U.S. attorney in Manhattan, Representative Elijah Cummings asked whether prosecutors had identified evidence of criminal conduct by Mr. Trump and whether the Justice Department policy had, quote, played any role in your office's decision not to indict President Trump for these hush money crimes. If the office did uncover evidence of criminal conduct by Mr. Trump's, by Mr. Trump, Mr. Cummings wrote, quote, this would be the second time the president has not been held accountable for his actions due to his position. The office of the presidency should not be used as a shield for criminal conduct, end quote. Well, yesterday, the New York Times broke some bombshell reporting sort of sort of relevant to what Michael Cohen's talking about of the American people should be worried about this. The New York Times writes, quote, Shortly after he became attorney general last year, William Barr set out to challenge a signature criminal case that touched President Trump's inner circle directly, and even the president and even the president's own actions. The prosecution of Michael Cohen, President Trump's longtime affixer and attorney, the debate between Mr. Barr and the federal prosecutors who brought who brought the case against Mr. Cohen was one of the first signs of a tense relationship that culminated last last weekend in the abrupt ouster of Jeffrey Berman, the United States Attorney in Manhattan. It also foreshadowed Mr. Barr's intervention in the prosecutions of other associates of Mr. Trump. By the time Mr. Barr was sworn into office in February, Mr. Cohen, who had 
paid hush money to an adult film star who said she had an affair with Mr. Trump, had already pleaded guilty with, excuse me, had already pleaded guilty and was set to begin a three-year sentence, all of which embarrassed and angered the president. But Mr. Barr spent weeks in the summer, in the spring of 2019, questioning the prosecutors over their decision to charge Mr. Cohen with violating campaign finance laws, according to people briefed on the matter. At one point during the discussions, Mr. Barr instructed Justice Department officials in Washington, D.C. to draft a memo outlining legal arguments that could have raised questions about Mr. Cohen's conviction and undercut similar prosecutions prosecutions, similar prosecutions in the future, according to the people briefed on the matter. Mr. Barr's unexpected involvement in such a politically sensitive case suggested that he had planned to exert influence over prosecutors in the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, long, now, long known for operating independently of Washington. Mr. Barr and other officials have told aides and other United States attorneys that the Southern District needs to be reined in, end quote. So that's what happened. Barr stepped in and once again, forgive me, screwed everything up. Now we're back to the question. Since the rule of law is in danger, how can we collectively as a nation save it? Well, first of all, the Founding Fathers created the rule of law for a reason. A, to avoid monarchies and kings, and B, to avoid tyrannical, autocratic, and authoritarian leadership here in the United States, also dictatorial leadership. And so, when the president starts poking around in DOJ cases, that's very problematic. Therefore, the rule of law is in peril. But it also is a problem when the attorney general is involved. According to the New York Times, According to that New York Times article, ever since Barb was sworn in, he has been interfering in cases in particular that involve Mr. that involve the president's friends. If the president doesn't like something and wants to save someone or punish someone, who does he call? Bill Barr. And so, back in February, the president and the attorney general intervened in a case regarding Roger Stone, one of the president's friends. They essentially tried to lessen his sentence and in the end, they did succeed, but also four federal prosecutors resigned in disgust about what had just transpired. Then, in May, there was bombshell reporting about the Justice Department dropping charges against Mike Flynn, who, by the way, pled guilty in court twice, and now the case has been dismissed. So, what do we do with that? What do you do when the rule of law is in danger? How do you govern and do we still have a government, a functional government, if the rule of law has been threatened? What do you do when corruption takes place at the top echelons of the federal government? Before I answer those questions, I want to play part of the opening statement by Donald Ayer, who testified to the House Judiciary Committee earlier this week. Good afternoon, Chairman Nadler, Ranking Member Jordan, and members of the committee. Thank you very much for inviting me to appear today. I was privileged to serve in the Department of Justice under two Republican and one Democratic president, and I am here because I believe that William Barr poses the greatest threat in my lifetime to our rule of law and to public trust in it. That is because he does not believe in its core principle that no person is above the law. Instead, since taking office, he has worked to advance his lifelong conviction that the president should hold virtually autocratic powers. 
Quote, I am here because I believe William Barr poses the greatest threat to the rule of law. He does not believe in its core principle, which is no one is above the law. End quote. Once again, that was Donald Ayer testifying to Congress earlier this week. Right there in that clip, he essentially is confirming that William Barr has done great damage to the rule of law. Rebecca Solnit from The Guardian wrote about the rule of law back in October of 2019 when the impeachment proceedings against President Trump and to President Trump were transpiring. She writes, quote, William Barr is supposed to be the nation's attorney general, whose job the Judiciary Act of 1789 defined as, quote, to give his advice and opinion upon questions of law when required by the president of the United States, end quote. But Barr has been bouncing all over the globe, pushing the president's self-serving conspiracy theories and smears of his rival candidates, a stunning violation of his role, end quote. I would amend that right now to a current crisis at the Justice Department where William Barr is cozying up to the president's demands and basically just doing whatever he wants. At the top echelons of the federal government, there is corruption. However, down below, there is de deconstructing and disorder. That is further proven by the Trump administration's conspicuous late night Fridays, late Friday night firings. What the president when the president, excuse me, what the president is doing is discharging people who provide oversight and keep our systems working. And the alarming thing is that he knows he's doing it. Rebecca Solnit continues, quote, we now face something worse. The corruption and decay of the rule of law is, sir, is, excuse me, a rule of law in service of billionaires and misogynistic white supremacists, a system in which the most powerful gain power and shed accountability. We are entering a period of immense danger in which this, this self-serving president's stupidity and ruthlessness could lead to almost anything. And I wrote that sentence before the feckless decision about Syria and Turkey. Congress will have to stand strong against whatever he unleashes. The fact that we may have to rely on a Supreme Court with two appointments by, by this illegitimate president is also alarming. End quote. That is 100% voracious, but also dark and inconceivably true. She wrote that back in October. Ultimately, in February, the president was acquitted by the Republican-controlled Senate, and impeachment has taught the president nothing. He is still doing what he did before, except worse. And that is a problem. From handling the coronavirus pandemic hor horribly, which is still taking place, not to mention cases are, cases are rising exponentially, and the president thinks it's a great time to hold his rallies. Meanwhile, where the coronavirus, mainly where the coronavirus is the worst. Also, racial inequality in the United States. The president has handled that horribly and keeps adding gasoline to the fire, an, anal an analogy that I have used repeatedly on this show, including by using racial language when he refers to the coronavirus as the, quote, Chinese virus, end quote. He says that because it originated in China, which is diametrically xenophobic. And lastly, the economic disaster. The president is not contributing to making this effort any better, but instead telling people to go back to work like everything's fine. Also, the rule of law is currently in danger. 
Therefore, what action can you take when something like this happens? What can you do as a citizen of this nation that was founded more than 242 years ago by our founding fathers on the fundamental notion of the rule of law? Well, it is our job as Americans and citizens of this country to step up to the stage and fix it. It is our time it is time for us to take action since Congress did not, since in particular, since the Senate, excuse me, in particular, since the Republican controlled Senate did not accept Mitt Romney. The alarms have sounded and we are all up. Rebecca Solnit ends off her piece by writing this, quote, we must not lose hope. In addition to the three branches of government, there is an unofficial fourth, civil society, which must exert itself. The will of the people is both what is at stake when a government becomes unaccountable and the force that can protect our embattled pub public interest. Passivity, excuse me, it is spelled P-A-S-S-I-V-I-T-Y, and disengagement got us here. Political engagement will get us out. When the DO, end quote, when the DOJ dropped cases, charges against Mike Flynn, it raised lots of questions, and also infuriation. More than 2,000 former Justice Department officials called for Barr to resign when he intervened in that case to fulfill the president's wishes. That is a threat to the rule of law and therefore makes it vulnerable. What Attorney General William Barr and President Donald Trump tried to pull off last Friday night backfired. And it is reprehensible that the Attorney General would take the president's side on this. And the mendacity of the president, I mean, for the president to say he didn't intervene in this matter was just a lie. When Barr clearly mentioned at the president's request, he has fired Jeffrey Berman. William Barr knows that DOJ is supposed to be independent. The only problem is that he's disregarding it and doing whatever the president wants. The president knows that DOJ is supposed to stay independent, but he's also disregarding it. There is no line that this president won't cross. We have seen him and say, we have seen him do and say inconceivable things. Ever since Trump has been in office, he has been vindictive towards law enforcement, including firing Sally Yates for not complying with a xenophobic Muslim ban, also firing James Comey for investigating the 2016 presidential elections and Russian interference. Also, and also, the firings of multiple inspector generals on Friday nights in April. Voting is imperative right now, not just for the presidency, but for in, in your state legislator, your state senator, your representative, your congressman, your congresswoman. Voting can change many things and get people in positions that won't procrastinate and will actually get work done. This is the most consequential presidential election ever. And it's going to take all of us to vote. Because what the current president is doing is eradicating this nation and the rule of law. If President Trump loses in the 2016 presidential election, he will no longer be immune from these cases. No more protection from prosecution. It will all be gone and justice will be served. David Rode from The New Yorker writes, quote, Barr surely, at Trump's behest, was attempting to remove a federal prosecutor 
who was care who has carried out a series of political embar- of politically embarrassing investigations of Trump's allies. End quote. When Barr said that Jeffrey Berman resigned, he was perplexed by the news because apparently no one told him this is coming, and he was fired without any explanation whatsoever. Or should I say Barr voluntarily said that he resigned without any explanation whatsoever. Therefore, he stayed and made a heroic public statement. Jeffrey Berman will now be noted in history books as a hero and someone who showed political courage, something that we saw by Mitt Romney just a few months ago under this administration. This is still an open book. There are still questions to be answered. This is not over. And I definitely look forward to reading the next chapter of this book. Attorney General William Barr is expected to testify to the House on July 28th. We'll see if he shows up. Keep an eye on this page. Much more ahead. When we see you enter through our doors, we don't see who you're against or for. Whether tomorrow will be light or dark, all we see in you is a spark. We see your spark in each nod, each smile. We see sparks in every aisle. We see you find a hidden gem and buying diapers at 3 a.m. We see your kindness and humanity. The strength of each community. We've seen more sparks than we can say. About 20 million just yesterday. The more we look, the more we find the sparks that make America shine. Earlier this week on Wednesday, June 24th, India opened a 10,000 megabed hospital in New Delhi. India, in, India has one of the worst and largest coronavirus outbreaks in the world. In fact, if you're looking at countries, India places number four because their epidemic is going right, is so bad, is going really bad right now. India currently has more than 490,000 coronavirus cases and more than 15,000 deaths. Cases there are just spiking. CNN has done some reporting on coronavirus cases in India, as well as a heartbreaking story. Quote, on Wednesday, New Delhi surpassed Mumbai's COVID-19 tally, becoming, the, becoming India's worst hit city. Lakit Singh, 68 years old, tested positive for the coronavirus, but couldn't find a hospital to admit him. Eventually, Lakit Singh went to the biggest government hospital in Delhi, before they set out they set out on the 30 minute ride to the hospital mandeep singh says the government apps show that the hospital had 1100 beds available but when they arrived mandeep singh claims his father-in-law was turned away by medical staff despite government hospitals in new delhi being legally bound to not refuse emergency patients medics said there were no free beds quote it was very unlikely that 1,100 beds would be occupied by the time we got there to LNGP Hospital, says Mandeep Singh. Quote, outside the hospital, the elder Singh fainted. His family rushed him inside, where 10 minutes later, a doctor examined him and proclaimed him dead on arrival. 
his story is relevant to another story, and it's about a pregnant woman. The New York Times writes, quote, Nalam Kumari Gautam woke up at 5 a.m. with shooting labors, her husband putting her gently in the back of a ricochet motored with her to a hospital, then another, then another. Her pain was so intense she could barely breathe, but no one would take her. Why are the doctors not taking me in? She asked her husband over and over again. What's the matter? I will die. End quote. Her husband began to panic. She, he knew what he was up against as India's coronavirus crisis accelerated. The first hospital that tried, the first hospital they tried at was the EC, excuse me, was the ESIC model hospital. According to her husband, that the first thing the doctor said in that hospital was, quote, I'll slap you if you take off your mask, end quote. Apparently, after that statement, they were both astonished, but Neelam was having trouble breathing, so they didn't get into any altercations, at which point she then begged for oxygen when the hospital had along, which the hospital had along with ventilators. But instead of helping her like a sympathetic human being, they turned her away, therefore causing them to travel miles to get to the next available hospital. At this point, she stopped talking and began heavily breathing. She clung to her husband's hand. Her husband said, quote, It wasn't simply that the doctors couldn't help her. It was as if they didn't want to help her. They didn't care if she was dead or alive. End quote. When they went to a fourth hospital, her husband pleaded for a ventilator. The New York Times writes, Mr. Singh said the doctor's response was, quote, She's going to die. Take her wherever you wish. End quote. After that inconceivably diabolical remark, they then went on to try three other hospitals, losing precious time. At this point, their information, their infuriation led them to calling the police. Quote, he said that the two officers meet, met him at the entrance of the Government Institute of Medical Sciences, a large public hospital, and tried to persuade the doctors to admit his wife. But the doctors wouldn't listen to the police officers either. But the Max Hospital, their either day, their either, excuse me, their eighth that day, gave them the same heartbreaking answer. No beds. Miss Godham closed her eyes and whispered, save me. Mr. Singh, her husband, told the ambulance to rush back to the Government Institute of Medical Sciences. He hunched in the back, leaning over his wife, pleading with her not to give up. He looked down at her face. She read, She reached up and clutched his shirt. Her hands tightly clenched the fabric. End quote. After hours of searching, panicking, begging, and desperately just asking for help, Miss Godham stopped breathing. Her neck tilted to the side. Her husband, Mr. Singh, jumped out of the ambulance, grabbed a wheelchair, and frantically wheeled her into the emergency room, but it was already too late. By 8 o'clock, by 8.05 p.m., after visiting 15 hours of visiting eight different hospitals, Neelam was pronounced dead. Her baby also died that day. A preliminary investigation into this said, quote, 
hospital administration and staff have been found guilty of carelessness. End quote. I should also note that the authorities are considering criminal charges in this case as well. Neelam's son reportedly told his father to throw all his mother's clothes away, saying that they reminded him of her. He now says he wants to be a doctor to save lives. Hey, TGAPS listeners, I started a new podcast called Disgrace. On this podcast, I talk about corruption at the top echelons of the federal government under the Nixon administration. You can stream on new podcasts for Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also on Google Podcasts. Here's the trailer. It began in the summer of 1972. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. This scandalous story, this astonishing arrest, who knew, who did it, and who was involved? This would eventually evolve into what we now know as today as the Watergate scandal. Good evening. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. In recent months, members of my administration and officials of the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, including some of my closest friends and most trusted aides, have been charged with involvement in what has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. Was the President involved in this, and did he orchestrate it? What did the President know, and when did he know it? president of the United States must give up some of those tape-recorded conversations. The court ruled that although he was the president, he was not above the law. Would the president resign or he gear up for a political fight? I think he should resign to save the nation a lot of embarrassment and future developments that may come along. This was the Watergate scandal, a scandal about corruption at the top echelons of the federal government. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. I'm Jeremiah Patterson, and this is Disgrace. Episode 1 will launch Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. New episodes every Tuesday. It was on June 17, 2015, that Dylan Roof walked into the Bible study of the Mother and Emmanuel Church and took nine innocent lives. Nine innocent lives. Therefore, just days later, on June 26, this day, five years ago, I attended the funeral in honor of those nine lives that were lost that day. I remember this day so vividly. That day began, the, the, excuse me, this day began early in the morning. And on this day, I remember getting up. We were going to our aunt's house to pick her up. After that, we went downtown to uh, downtown Charleston. We stood in line for uh, just hours waiting uh, to get inside. We ultimately did get inside uh, to the, to the Charleston I believe there's a College of Charleston. Yes, it was the College of Charleston. When we got inside, we went to the we went through the Secret Service checkpoint to check and see if we had anything that could potentially 
endanger the president of the United States that could potentially pose as a threat to the president of the United States as he was walking inside that arena. We were cleared. We then walked inside. And as we were sitting down, we did not know that a Secret Service agent was sitting right next to us. He was dressed sort of in uniform. Not, excuse me, not in uniform. He was dressed sort of surreptitiously. Uh, we did not know he was a Secret Service agent until he approached us and said that the President of the United States would be coming in on that side. Therefore, do not stick your hand out or anything that would just cause chaos or raise any alarms about you as an individual. And so after that, we were really so we were really still astonished at that moment because we still didn't know the president. We 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 really did not intentionally sit there. We did not know the president was going to come in on that side. And so ultimately, President Barack Obama did walk in on that side, and it was it was an incredible moment. Um, on the front on the front row seat there, we on the front row seats we saw Second Lady Jill Biden. We saw. First Lady Michelle Obama, President Barack Obama, and Vice President Joe Biden, as well as former South Carolina, which is now former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. We saw her sitting there along with the family of Clemente Pinckney, one of those who was gunned down in that church. In, as President Obama was delivering his eulogy, he was very sympathetic very sympathetic. I cannot claim to have had the good fortune to know Reverend Pickney well, but I did have the pleasure of knowing him and meeting him here in South Carolina back when we were both a little bit younger. <laughs> back when I didn't have visible gray hair. The first thing I noticed was his graciousness, his smile, his reassuring baritone, his deceptive sense of humor, all qualities that helped him wear so effortlessly a heavy burden of expectation. Friends of his remarked this week that when Clementa Pickney entered a room, it was like the future arrived, that even from a young age, folks knew he was special. Through some of that speech, I was sleeping on my aunt's lap, or I could have say, you know, I, I, th I think I was actually resting my head on my aunt's lap. And when he did this, when he started doing this, when he did this in this particular moment, this is when it caught my attention, and I then arose from my nap. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
And that is where we end off tonight. Thank you very, thank you so very much for listening to these four episodes of the Jeremiah Patterson Show for these past four days. I'm sorry for bugging you for four days, but the news was essential. I'm glad I covered all of it. And therefore, I bring you another burden of four days to carry on you. Next week uh, on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, I'll have an exclusive episode on the Jeremiah Patterson Show with a ProPublica reporter. He's been doing some excellent reporting on the coronavirus in nursing homes. Therefore, I have him on the show. I have him booked on the show for Monday. Join me Monday. Also on Tuesday, I have another ProPublica reporter for an amazing story that you are going to want to listen to. So, Please join us next week. Have a great weekend. Stay positive and inspired. Stay indoors and God bless.